I'm very grateful that I am uh, related to the speaker. <laughs> Lee is uh, my brother Maury's boy. And Lee and Margie, he had the good judgment to marry a Margie. I married a Marjorie. A little different spelling, but we, Marjorie and I, are L&M number one. L&M number two are seated here with us, and I'm glad we are, that you are here. Last night in our first service, I found myself thinking of the fact that we are all becomers. We're changing day to day, and this uh, special time of renewal is a time of when we focus on becoming, becoming in ways that uh, are most important and wonderful. The way we become at its heart is a very simple principle. By beholding, we become changed. We become like those persons, things that we admire. And uh, that's what this week is about, by beholding, becoming like him who gave himself for us. In uh, the first epistle of John, John, who was the youngest of Jesus' disciples, writes about what happened for him. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. I love this passage because John is telling us firsthand experience. The life appeared, and we have seen and testified to it. We proclaim the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. We want, we've got to share it. It is too good to keep to ourselves. We want to pass, we want to spread the word. Lee and Margie, our, our guests, have been a part of our lives for a lot of years. Um, <laughs> I don't want to get telling stories there, but it, it, things worked out very early. We were there when they were married, that I had a little part in the service. Um, but they, they, they became good friends to us, not just relatives. We actually enjoyed being with them. We, uh, if we had a, a, a free Saturday night, we said, oh, we know what we'll do. We'll go see Lee and Margie. And that, that, that friendship and that uh, just been such, it continues to the present moment. I remember my brother saying to us at one point, we appreciate the interest that you take in Lee and Margie. What? What are you talking about? 
we take an interest in your, we like them because they're among our very favorite people. So we're enjoying this special time with great joy. Uh, Lee and Margie bring a background of education, of teaching, of preaching, of pastoring. That is a rich and wonderful background. And uh, nine years ago, thereabouts, God called them to help us, to be among the witnesses, to point us where we need to focus our lives and our attention. In those nine years, they've been, well, it's a, right close to 200, Lee coming up close on 200 times in different parts of God's planet Earth, bringing the good word. So we are so blessed and privileged to have them here with us this time. We're enjoying it beyond, and uh, we're looking forward, Lee and Margie, to your, to your continued presence and your blessing and bearing witness out of your lives to the one who called us and gave himself for us. Thank you so much for being here, you dear people. He said that we've known each other for a long time, of course. <clears throat> he's known me for 62 years, and he's known Margie for about 40. Uncle Lou's the one who tied the knot for us. Um, Aunt Margie and he have been friends to us for so long, and one of the things he said is not quite as powerful as it would have been. He said that they, he, they considered us among their very best friends. As we travel around the country, we keep meeting people who tell us, we are your uncle and aunt's best friends. <laughs> and we say, no, you're not. We are their best friends. And it happens everywhere we go. And, and, and the thing that's so cool about it is that they really are like best friends to just about everybody they know. It's just when I grow up, I want to be like Aunt Lou, I mean, Aunt Margie and Uncle Lou. Um, they just mean worlds to us. Um, and one other thing is that uh, <clears throat> sometimes there's a little voice that says, don't even go there. You won't make it if you try and talk about that. And I'm hearing the voice right now. And I'm trying to ignore it. But... Um, <clears throat> Clear back in early 2000s, my dad began slipping into the shadows. And as dad slipped into the shadows, Uncle Lou stepped into the light. And he's been like my dad for me after dad couldn't be that way anymore 
Miguel is. Lord Jesus, just once more, I'm adding my prayers to the ones that have gone on before me, that you would give us what we need, that your Holy Spirit would be close, and that the devil and his, his employees would be crowded from this room. Holy Spirit, <clears throat> Jesus told Nicodemus that we wouldn't get anything out of spiritual things if you didn't show up. So I'm asking for you to do that in his name. Amen. How do you fall in love? <clears throat> when I was in high school, my mother picked out a girl for me. She said she's the one. Got her picked out. That girl's mother picked me out for her daughter, so the two moms were conspiring together. <laughs> then that girl and I were friends, family friends. We'd hung out and done stuff together for years as families. But there was no spark. There was no click. Is it there? Yeah. There was no magic. And so we just continued to be friends. Then we went off to college. And there at the college, several of our mutual friends began to tell us that we ought to be a couple. You guys would be perfect for each other. You just like, you're, you'd be peace in a pod. And uh, we thought how silly of them to agree with our parents when there's no click for us. Because, you know, and that's Margie just gave it to me, without the click, it just doesn't get anywhere, you know? So time passed at college, and then I uh, was one day in my dorm room. It wasn't an assignment. It was just a personal thing I did. I decided to write down a list of the things that I would think would be the most valuable in a life companion. It didn't take long. It wasn't a real long list, just a half a dozen that were the most important to me. And after I finished my list and I was looking over my list, it suddenly occurred to me that this girl that had been recommended by my mother and that was continuing to be recommended by my friends had every one of the qualities on my paper. On paper, she was perfect. If you were going to give ratings of, you know, 10 out of 10, she had 10 out of 10. It was amazing. And I thought to myself, have mercy. I've been blind. How it is that I could have overlooked this? Here she is. So I called her on the phone at her dorm. And I said, you know how our friends have for years and our parents have said we should be a couple? And she said, yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> Wasn't quite the response for that moment. <laughs> She said, why do you say that? And I said, well, I was just wondering what would have to happen if we were going to become a couple. And she said, what do you mean? I said, if we were going to become what people say we should be, what would have to happen? And she said, well, you'd have to start by asking me for a date, I guess. I said, okay, then, I'm asking you for a date. There's a program being sponsored by the Student Association Saturday night here in the auditorium, and I'd like to have you be my date. And she said, are you kidding? I said, no, I'm serious. Long pause, heavy sigh, 
<sighs> and then she said, all right. <laughs> Enthusiasm just oozing through the phone. <laughs> so we went to this event together, and as I was escorting her back to the dormitory after the event, I said to her, so how did it go? What did you think? She said, nothing worked for me. What about you? I said, no, nothing worked for me either. I said, what do you think we should do? She says, I suppose we could try dating some more. <laughs> Enthusiasm continuing to just ooze out of her. So we did it a few more dates, but there was no click. There was no spark. There was no fire. There was no magic. There was no romance. It was like the plane was taxiing down the runway, but it just wouldn't take off. So finally we agreed that we weren't meant for each other in spite of how it looked on paper and how it looked in the eyes of others. And I went off to a different school. And at the other school, those of you who were here for the morning meeting this morning, I told you I met Margie. When I first met Margie um, <clears throat> over here at La Sierra campus, she worked on security. Let me show you a picture of her. Isn't that cute? Little security guard, little veg-a-cop, you know? <laughs> And I took one look at her and I said, you know what? I am insecure and that's the kind of security I need. <laughs> now I need to tell you that there was no spark with Margie. There was a nuclear reaction. <laughs> it went like this with her. The reason I told you those two contrasting stories. In the first one, I tried to fall in love. I tried to get a heart relationship going with somebody, but the click was missing, and it wouldn't fly. Then with Margie, the click was there, and we've been clicking ever since, and Uncle Lou tied the knot, and 40 years later, we're still here, and so I praise God for that. But it has something to do with our presentation for this, this, this time. Uh, Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and we're going to look at that. If you had been here for the meeting last night, uh, the point of last night's meeting was that God is looking for friends, and he's looking your way, and he's looking my way, and he wants something more than just a kind of a, a nod towards heaven kind of friendship. He wants a deep, intimate, meaningful, personal, daily, ongoing, special, below the surface, not casual relationship with each one of us. That was the first night's meeting. Those of you who are here for the first meeting this morning, it's who you know. And we showed you from the Bible that Christianity at its heart is all about knowing Jesus personally and intimately. In fact, we said Christianity is not about what you do. It's about who you know, and then who you know will change what you do. So the focus is not on behavior or performance. The focus is on Jesus. In fact, I, I said something I'd never said before. I liked it so well, I want to say it again. It's not behavior, it's savior. They rhyme, but they're worlds apart. Big difference. Um, now, in John chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus in which he tells him, you're never going to have the heart-stirring stir relationship with me if you don't have the click. He calls it the new birth. We've referred to it as conversion or being born again. I think the click works best for me as I try to put my head around that thing. It's like <clears throat> on paper, being a Christian can make sense, 
convincing arguments and proof texts can line up for you and you can say, yes, this is the right thing. I'm going to choose the right thing. But if your heart is not captured, then you're going through the motions like I was with that girl and the thought of kissing that girl was repulsive to me. It's not repulsive with Margie because the click is there. And so the heart has to be in the relationship for it to really fly, for it to really take off. <clears throat> Can you know if you've been converted? Can you know if you've had the click, spiritually speaking? Well, Jesus gave several um, like indicators, and I'm going to just put them on the screen real quickly. Uh, number one is Jesus the center of your life. In Mark 12:30, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So I guess you could put it this way. Who gets your time and attention? Of whom do you love to speak or think? If the answer is Jesus rises to the top quickly with a question like that, then that's one indicator that the click of conversion is active in your life. Number two, do you have a deep interest in God's word? 1 Peter 2, verse 2, as newborns, newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. One of the things that newborns have to have and seem to be intent on getting is nu nutrition. You know, they have to eat. They have to, they have an appetite. And um, one of the indicators that the click of conversion is active in your life is you have an appetite for the bread of life. You can't Hardly get enough of the bread of life. You want more. You look forward to it. Before the click, this is like a book of information and facts. Before the click, this is like an encyclopedia. After the click, this book becomes like a love letter from a fiancé. And you read love letters from fiancés way differently than you read encyclopedias. Okay, click. Number three, point number three. Indicator, do you have a meaningful prayer life? John 17, 3 is a verse we looked at in the previous morning meeting. Jesus, you know, talking here, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that they may know you. Once you have the click, prayer changes from simply trying to claim promises or uh, uh, calling 911 emergency help, phone calls to heaven. Please don't let that officer give me a speeding ticket. Please help me find my keys. It, it changes from that kind of thing to a conversation with your friend. It's communicating friend with friend after the click. Prior to the click, it's just so many words. After the click, it's can't wait to talk with your friend kind of a thing. A fourth indicator do you have a daily experience with God? Luke 9, 23. Jesus talking here, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. How often? Daily and follow me. In other words, Christian life is not restricted to showing up in church once a week and saying prayer before I eat food. It's something far more than that. It's a daily, intimate, ongoing, personal relationship. It's a lifestyle walking with God. Number five, do you desire to share Jesus? Luke 149, he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. When you have the click, you want to spill over. People don't have to try and coerce you to share. They don't have to guilt you into witnessing. 
They don't have to remind you of your responsibility and duty to the people who are perishing if you don't go out there and go to work. No, when you have the click, you can't keep quiet about your friend Jesus. It bubbles over. When I met Margie in the library, those of you who were here first service this morning told you we met in the library uh, over at La Sierra campus. After we went back to our dorm rooms, the first thing I told my roommate was about this girl that I just met. I couldn't quit talking about her. And she tells me that when she went back to her dorm room, she began telling her roommate about the guy she just met. Because as you become excited about a relationship, it just spills over to other relationships. That's the way it works. So these are five indicators about the click of conversion being active in your life. As you mentioned earlier in the morning meeting this morning, it is possible to have it here without having it here. It is possible to have head knowledge without having the heart experience, and that's what Jesus told the woman at the well we desperately need. We want to have both oars in the water because if we just have one oar in the dinghy, it's going to go in circles. So we want head and heart involved. Now I want to show you a little paragraph from the book Steps to Christ that describes the contrast between head and heart. Please notice when Christ dwells in the heart, okay, before we read any further, this is when the click is going, when the click is active in our lives. We have the heart experience, not just the head. When Christ dwells in the heart, the soul will be so filled with his love and the joy of communion with him that it will cling to him and love to Christ will be the spring of action. But now notice the contrast. A profession of Christ without this deep love, okay? So calling myself a Christian without the click. Don't have the heart thing, just have the head thing. A profession of Christ without this deep love is mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. What does that look like? It looks kind of like this. It's the morning for church conversation, two adults in a household. One says to the other, well, do you think we ought to go to church today? Yeah, I suppose we probably ought to. I don't really want to, but if we want the kids to think it's important, we probably should show up. Yeah, and last time we skipped, the pastor called to find out if everything was okay. I don't need another call like that. Yeah, okay, well, I'll go if you'll go. Let's put a brave face on it. Maybe we can make the kids think it's really cool, and maybe... Maybe he'll finish early and we'll still have a day left, you know? What is that? Mere talk, dry formality, heavy drudgery. Why? Because they're clickless. Got to have the click. When you don't have the click, you watch the clock. When you don't have the click, you note that the pastor went long. I've often wondered how come nobody watches the clock at the Super Bowl. You know, when it goes into overtime, they don't say, I'm out of here, man. I paid money to come to this place, and they can't end on time. They ought to learn how to run a program that is punctual. People pay for something. They ought to get what they pay for. I'm leaving. I don't care if it's going into overtime. I don't care. I'm out of here. No, they don't do that at sporting events, but they do it at church. Why? Because they're clickless. When you have the click, you're not looking for the exit door as soon as the uh, clock gets to a certain time. Wow. So this click of conversion is of absolute and vital importance. You know what? It's the hinge on which the gospel swings. Got to have the click. 
And it's not a one-time thing. We were told in our church periodical many years ago that we needed to be sure that we were converted every day. It's a daily thing. So let's see what Jesus had to say about conversion or the new birth or the click as he had a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. John chapter three, it starts like this. After dark one evening, a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to speak with Jesus. Teacher, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us your miraculous signs are proof enough that God is with you. As I sort of began reading that passage, I made little notes to myself about what I thought was going on in this evening's conversation. And I believe that what starts out here is that Nicodemus is saying to Jesus, you're a teacher, I'm a teacher. Could we have a discussion about spiritual things? I'd like to talk to you about spiritual things. Notice how Jesus responds in John 3, verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So what's Jesus saying? Nicodemus says, can we talk about spiritual things? And Jesus says, I don't think so. I don't think you'd get it. It'd go right over the top of your head. Why? Well, because you can't even see spiritually until you have the click. And Nicodemus, you are clickless. Can't even see. Jesus didn't say you couldn't go to heaven. He said you can't even see the things of the kingdom of heaven if you don't have the click. Can you imagine trying to describe the color red to somebody who was born blind? What would you say? Well, it's a very dark color. It's darker than yellow. What are they going to say? What's yellow look like? Well, you say yellow is brighter than red. And you see it's kind of a hopeless, vicious circle. You're going to have a hard time describing color to someone born blind because they don't have what it takes to grab on to that conversation. It's kind of like that. Spiritual things, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. We can't talk about that stuff because you don't have what it takes to grab on to it. You just don't have what it takes. Jesus was saying something very similar in Matthew 13 when he said, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Paul was saying something similar to Jesus when he said in 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded. So, if reading the Bible for you has been a struggle, if it's been mere talk, dry formality, heavy drudgery, I want to tell you that it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Ever since Adam and Eve blew it in the garden, we have been born clickless. That's the way we're born, which is why Jesus says you need a second birth because there's something wrong with the first birth. And until you have the second birth, you're not really going to find an interest in spiritual things. Oh, you might read out of duty and responsibility and because somebody's convinced you that it's important for you to do this on a daily basis, but if you don't have the click, it's just an encyclopedia of information and facts. When our children were in elementary school, I'm guessing maybe around fourth or fifth grade, we were living in the Seattle area and uh, we took our kids to a thing called the Pacific Science Center. 
It's a multi-story building that takes up a half a city block full of experiments that are user-friendly, kid-friendly, family-friendly, and it's kind of exciting to have science that, you know, that attractive. So we took our kids and we're going through and looking at the various displays and learning things and doing things. And I got a little bit ahead of the rest of the family and I came to a display that looked a little bit like this. It looked kind of like a calendar. And uh, across the top of the calendar, well, in fact, every top right corner, there's a small number in the calendar. And then there's blotches of color in the center with a large prominent number uh, in the rest of the squares. And I thought, I wonder what this is all about. So each, each display has a little like um, uh, description that's been written out so you can learn what you can find out about this one here. And so I went over to read it and this is what it said. It said, this display helps to determine whether or not you're colorblind in any way, shape, or form. It says, now, there is a prominent number in the center of every splotch of color in this grid. If, however, you do not see a prominent number in the center of every splotch of color, there's something wrong with your eyes. And if you come back here and you tell us what square you don't see the numbers in, we can tell you what's wrong with your eyes. So I look back at the, at the grid again, and, and as I looked at it, all of a sudden I realized I wasn't seeing a number in the top right corner. And I know you aren't either because I made the graphic and I left the number off when I, when I made it. So you don't have to wonder if your eyes are bad, but I didn't see a number in the top right corner. So I went back over to the display, and it said, if you do not see the number 11 in square 7, it means you are colorblind to the color red when it is embedded in other colors. And I thought, get out of here. I'm in my 30s, and nobody's ever told me I'm colorblind before. These people have their nerve telling me I'm colorblind. I mean, yeah, people have said, surely you're not going to wear that tie with that shirt. But that's just personal preference. That's not colorblind. And, but these people are telling me I'm colorblind. And, and I thought, get out of here. And just then my daughter, Lindsay, who was a member of this church while she was in nursing school and loved the Calamisa Church. And there's even people here that still remember her. So that's kind of cool and heartwarming to Margie and I. Um, Lindsay comes along and I said, Lindsay, come here, I have a question for you. I said, you see this little display? Tell me what you see in the top right corner. She says, well, I see a little number seven and a big number 11. What? Why, Dad? I said, you seen 11 in that square? She said, yeah, don't you? I said, Lindsay, you can go now. <laughs> Our son Chris was next. I said, Chris, I need you over here for a minute. He came over. I said, Chris, what do you see in the top right corner? Well, he said, I see a big splotch of color and then there's 11 in the middle of it. Is there something else I should be looking for? I said, you see an 11 there? He said, yeah, Dad, don't you? And I told him he could leave also. You know, no, no need for that. Margie's coming along. I said, Margie, what do you see? Top right corner. She said, I see a little seven, a big 11, and some color. Why? I said, where's the 11? And Margie takes her finger and she traces an 11 in the spot on the square where it was, but I didn't see it. Even though she traced it, I didn't see it. The point of this story is, there's something wrong with my eyes. And unless a miracle could be worked or some sort of surgery could be done that would be corrective, I will never see the, color, the, the number 11 in square seven because of the limitation that I have. I can know people that see it. I can read what the professionals say I should be able to see. I can see what the Sabbath school lesson quarterly says I should get out of scripture. I could hear other people talk about what they're getting from time with God. But if I don't have the click, I don't see the number. It's just mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. Gotta have the click. Gotta have the click.
Well, what does Nicodemus say? Verse four. How can a man get the click? How can a man be born when he's old? You said I need to be born again. How can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. So I said I was trying to make notes on this conversation he's having. So this is kind of how they looked for me. He starts out, can we talk about spiritual things? He just says, you wouldn't get it without the click. So then he says, so how can I get the click? Because the truth is, I would like it to be something other than just showing up in church because that's what we do. I'd like it to be something more than just, well, the family's always gone, and if I didn't go, I'd be disappointing a whole bunch of people. No, I would like it to actually come into the heart, you know? So how can I get the click? Watch what Jesus says in response. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So what is Jesus saying? I'll tell you what, Nicodemus, you can't get the click by saying, by George, I'll just go ahead and click right now. It doesn't work like that. It's a spirit thing. The Holy Spirit has to make this happen. And until the Holy Spirit makes it happen, you're just gonna see mere talk, dry formality, heavy drudgery. You can't fix it. It's supernatural. And then Jesus says, you know, Nicodemus, uh, you don't know where the wind is coming from and you don't know where it's going. But when the wind blows through the tree like it's blowing right over here, you see the tree leaves shaking in the wind and you know something's happening. What's well, like that with the Holy Spirit and the click? You don't know where the Holy Spirit's coming from and you don't know where he's headed. But I'll tell you what, when the spirit wind begins to blow through your heart and the leaves of the heart tree begin to vibrate in the wind you will know something is happening there is going to be a change that you can tell is happening and it's all man it's a whole new ball game after that Nicodemus it's no longer just talk and heavy drudgery it's I can't wait to the for the next phone call from my fiance I'm looking forward to time with Jesus Holy Spirit thing Holy Spirit thing well how does Nicodemus respond in verse 9, he says, how can these things be? Let's look at the summary. He starts off by saying, can we talk about spiritual things? No, you would have to have the click first. Well, how can I get the click? Well, actually, it's a spirit thing. You can't make it happen. It's supernatural. But I really want it. So is there anything I can do? How can these things be? Is there anything I can do that would avail myself of the spirit wind so that it could blow through and the leaves begin to vibrate because I want that change? I may be the church leader. I may be the teacher in Israel. That's what Jesus calls him just a few minutes later in the same passage. I may be the teacher in Israel, but I don't have a heart that stirs with love and appreciation for the things of heaven. It's just routine. It's just theology without Jesus. I want something more. Is there anything I can do? You talked about the wind. Well, can I jump into the wind? Because I'd like to have that change. So that's where he's going with that question. And I am so thankful that Nicodemus hung on like a bulldog because quite frankly, 
I want to know how to experience the click on a daily basis, and I want to be able to tell other people how they can experience it too, because without the click, we are just dead in the water. We'll be a denomination dead in the water if we're clickless. Got to have something greater. How can these things be? Is there anything I can do? Humanly speaking, is there anything I can do? And watch what Jesus says in response. Verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Huh. What does Jesus do? Nicodemus says, humanly speaking, is there anything I can do that makes the click more likely to happen? Jesus tells him a snake story. That's what he does. You know the story. It's found in Numbers 21. Children of Israel are dying from snake bite as they're traveling across the desert, right? Moses goes to God and he says, what are we gonna do? They're dying like flies. God says, you make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up above the camp and you tell the people who are dying if they've been bitten and they look in the direction of the uplifted serpent on that cross, they will be healed. You just go ahead and do that. So Moses does it. I would, I would actually encourage you to check this out. I did it for myself in Numbers 21 and I found out something very interesting. You didn't have to believe it was going to work in order for it to work. You didn't have to have faith. It, it didn't work for you so long as you hadn't been messing with snakes when you were bitten. No, it worked for anybody, regardless of whether they picked a snake up by the tail, got bit, messing with snakes, and then looked. And, and another thing, it doesn't say... If you got healed once and then you were bit a second time, well, then, you know, that's not going to work the second time. This is like a one-time one cure. Numbers 21 is very plain. There was no condition for healing other than looking in the direction of the uplifted serpent on the pole. Now, this isn't rocket science. What does the serpent on the pole represent? Anybody have an idea? Do we have any guesses? Jesus on the cross, right? So what is Jesus saying when Nicodemus says, humanly speaking, is there anything I can do that would make this click happen more quickly through the power of the Holy Spirit? And Jesus' answer is yes, there is one thing you can do. You can look in the direction of the uplifted Savior. You can focus on the life of Christ, particularly the cross, even if you're clickless and you don't have to have faith that it's going to work, you just look. And as you look, you say, you say a prayer. You say, I want something more. Can you please give it to me through the power of the Holy Spirit? And Jesus promises Nicodemus in John chapter 3, it will come. The spirit wind will blow. This is not a, well, maybe it works for some people and others it won't. No, he gives his word that if you look in the direction of the uplifted Savior with a prayer that he can take you deeper than just head knowledge and proof texts, he will do it. The click will come. It's supernatural. In other words, Jesus is saying there is life in a look at me which is why my uncle introduced this meeting by reading from John 1 and referring to a Corinthian saying, by beholding, we become changed. Now, in the book Desire of Ages, there's a chapter entitled Nicodemus. And as I was studying through John 3, I decided to read the chapter, Nicodemus, in the Desire of Ages. 
And I came across something that actually kind of rocked my world. It was so out of the box for me that it basically kind of took my breath away. And the reason it took my breath away is because I am a, one, two, I guess, one, two, one, two, three, fourth, fourth, I'm a fourth generation Adventist, right? Uh, okay, my uncle says that's right, so I'm, uh, I'm good for that. Um, fourth generation Adventist, I, uh, my subculture, my Seventh-day Adventist roots, fourth generation. And because of the subculture that I come out of, what I read here, blew my mind. Let me, let me read it to you. This is what it said. It said, not through controversy or discussion is the soul enlightened. Convincing arguments only fill the church with unconverted people. Why'd that rock my world? Because my denomination specializes in convincing arguments. That's what we do best. I'm sorry. <clears throat> That's what we do best. We give the convincing arguments and the proof text. We line the theological ducks in a row, and then we say, okay, so if you want to be on the winning side of the debate, you're going to have to sign up with us because we've got this from Scripture, and nobody has it as clear as we do, so there you go. Boom, 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 sign on the bottom line, and we convince people that we're right, and we fill our churches with convinced people who have not been converted because convincing arguments don't convert hearts. And I'm hearing... Wake up. Man, I'm sorry. It's not the church's fault because I brought my own microphone. And I'm not exactly sure where we're going here, but I'm going to see if I can find a safe spot to stand. <clears throat> so don't blame the guys running the sound up there. It's not, nothing to do with them. <clears throat> Convincing arguments only fill churches with unconverted people. Now, you realize churches filled with unconverted people is a recipe for disaster, you know? You realize that? Because why did we fill them? We filled them because we convinced them that we were right. When you fill a church with people who joined because they wanted to be right, then what do they do? They're very quick to notice who's not as right as they are. And they're really good about pointing out what's not right with this thinking, what's not right with this campus, what's not right with this church, what's not right with this movement, what's not right with this theology, what's not right with this preaching, what's not right with that school, what's not right, what's not right, what's not right with that kind of eating, what's not right with that kind of music, what's not right with that kind of entertainment, what's not right, 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 right. We're really good at pointing out what's not right. Is that a safe place to bring a friend or a neighbor? I don't think so. True story. I don't know why I said that because whenever you say that, it makes people say, does that mean all his other stories aren't true? Why, why would he say true story? No. True story. Um, I won't tell you where, but I know the church. It's part of my subculture. And it's not close to here. So you're off the hook. But at this particular church, they have a committee. They have a committee that oversees potlucks but they don't just oversee that there's tables and chairs and stuff no if you're going to bring an item to the potluck you have to submit the list of ingredients on your item and then the committee will read through the list and they'll decide whether it's approved item or not and then you can come in with it so there's these two neighbors living in that town one's a member of that church and the other's just her neighbor friend 
who is pretty much unchurched. Her unchurched neighbor decides one day that she's going to visit the church. She knows from her neighbor's conversations that at this church, they have a potluck afterwards, and so she thinks, I wanna stay for the whole day, I'm gonna experience the whole day with them, so I'm gonna go to the potluck. And then she thinks, I'm not gonna just go, I'm gonna bring an item too, I wanna contribute, and so, and my neighbor has told me that many, if not all of the people there are, are vegetarian, so I won't bring a meat item. So, so she made macaroni and cheese casserole and brought that to the church. She went into the little uh, kitchen area and she left her casserole dish there and then she went to church. After church, she came to the potluck and she, going through the line, she noticed her casserole dish wasn't there and she thought, oh dear, I must have put it in the wrong place and they didn't know I brought that for them. And so she went back into the kitchen to see if she could let them know that she intended and she found her casserole dish with all of its contents in the trash can. Do you think she was very inclined to go back to that church? No. No, but they were right, you know. Righteousness by vegan, you know. I'm not saying that vegan is bad. I'm just saying you're not going to go to heaven because you're vegan. And we better get that clear in our heads. For one thing, you know, Jesus ate meat before and after the resurrection, you know. So what do you make of that? I don't know. But (laughs) the point I want to make is They thought they were right, and they were determined to make sure that everybody else is right as they are, and it just scares people off. That's what it does. It's not a safe place to bring your neighbor or your friend. A few years ago, there was a survey given in North America to Seventh-day Adventists. I happened to know the vice president for the North American division who was involved in the survey himself, kind of coordinated the survey. So I called him after the survey had been completed on the phone and I asked him a few questions about what they learned from the survey. And the things he told me blew my mind. He told me that, um, first of all, in North America, there are approximately one million people who have their names listed as church members of a local Seventh-day Adventist congregation somewhere. Approximately how many? One million. Names on church records. Then he said, of those one million whose names are on the church records, less than 50% of them attend church even once a month. You could say have, mer- I could say have mercy. But it gets worse. Then he told me, our survey revealed something we hadn't planned on finding out, and that is that in North America at the present time, there are more than two million former Seventh-day Adventists. They don't even go to church. They've had their names removed from the books. So I figured that out, and you know what that is? That means for every Seventh-day Adventist who does attend church somewhere, there are five who no longer attend. That's five out of six. That's a pretty sad failure rate. If you're a physician and you lose five out of six patients, how long are you going to stay in business? Right? There's something wrong with this picture. Losing five out of six people, it means diddly, it means nothing to boast about how many people we baptize if we lose five out of six. You understand what I'm saying? It's no badge of success if we lose five out of six. Now, this is not something that they're gonna do a big article and publish on the front of the review because it doesn't look real complimentary. So we'd rather tell you how many people we baptize in India than to tell you we lose five out of six North Americans. 
But I say there's something wrong with this picture. And I'm real interested in seeing that changed. So what's wrong? We have filled our churches with unconverted people by using convincing arguments. Jesus said, if you will lift me up and point them to me and introduce them to me, I will draw them to myself. That's what he said. That's what he said. Why do we have such a failure rate? Because we have tended to talk more about the rules than the ruler. We have tended to talk more about the laws, the laws than the Lord. Promise I'll have this worked on before the last meeting. You won't hear all those pops. But we've talked more about the laws than the Lord. We've tended to talk more about information than an introduction to a person. We have tended to talk more about facts than a friend, even if they are amazing. We have talked more about the Sabbath being the seventh day of the week and the fourth commandment than we have introducing people to the Lord of the Sabbath. Understand something. If I don't know the Lord of the Sabbath, it doesn't matter what day I go to church on. It really doesn't. Because it was Sabbath keepers who put Jesus to death. And they had their kids in church schools. They returned tithes and offerings. They had a health message and a prophetic gift. And they went home from Calvary so they could have sundown worship with their families. Just knowing what day Sabbath is and convincing people that if they want to be on the winning side of the debate, they go to church on Saturday instead doesn't do anybody any good if you haven't introduced them to the Lord of the Sabbath. We need something more than convincing arguments. We must look and live. As I said, Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And so I want to tell you something that happened to me not too far from here. I was, I was 18 years of age. My dad's a preacher. So, uh, you know, I grew up as a preacher's kid. As you know, my uncle's a preacher. I have preachers coming out of my ears. I could give you a long list of all the preachers in the Venden family, but I was uh, uh, going to La Sierra Academy, Seventh-day Adventist High School, and uh, I got a, A's in Bible class. I, 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 was, I was able to get, I had to write term papers on what we call Bible doctrines. Uh, back then, we called them the 27 fundamentals. Now we have 28. Who knows? We might have 29 soon, but... Um, I could give convincing arguments, get A's. But it was mere talk, dry formality, heavy drudgery. I'll tell you why I went to the youth division at our church. It was because I wanted to hang out with my friends and they were serving donuts. And these weren't just, you know, low budget donuts. These were Winchell's donuts. So, you know, who wouldn't want to go to Sabbath school if you could have free Winchell's donuts and hang out with your friends? That's why I was there. But as I already said, mere talk, dry formality, heavy drudgery. Okay, and then one Friday night, the girlfriend that I had at that time was gone for the weekend, and I was bored and trying to figure out what to do with myself, so I said, I'm gonna go see one of my guy friends. I knocked on his door. I said, I'm bored. My girlfriend's gone for the weekend. Um, thought I'd come and hang out with you. What's going on? He said, I was just getting ready to go to a Bible study. Why don't you come with me? And I, my mouth dropped open because this guy, the last place in the world I would expect to find him would be at a Bible study. And I said, get out of here. You're not going to a Bible study. You're going to a party. So where's the party? He says, no, I'm going to a Bible study, and you should come. I go, you are not going to a Bible study. Yeah, you and who else, I said. 
and he gave me the list of the people at this Bible study, and they were all people who were do, uh, they, 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 well, they were party animals, and I'm not talking about Republicans and Democrats. They, you know, these were users and abusers. They were dealers as well as users. This was the group that was at this Bible study, and I said, I don't believe that for a second. Not that group, not those people. He said, you should come, check it out for yourself. Now, I just have to give you a little background before I tell what happens next. This same group of people, party animals, had been at a party on a Friday night sometime prior. And they were in that, at that party, they were in various states of ruin and disorder. Uh, back in the day, we had a lot of different terms for it. We said they were stoned, they were wasted, they were out of it, they were blowing it, they were laid back, they were chilling, they were, there's all kinds of words we would use, but the bottom line is, they weren't in their own minds. And as they were there, in various states of ruin and disorder, one of them said this. Hey, man. Like, I was thinking, man, what if there's really a God? And what if, like, he wants to have a connection with us, man? And what if we missed out on the whole deal because we're so bored with church we never gave him a chance? What do you think about that, man? Well, in the state of mind that they were in, they did not think quickly, so there was a long pause. <laughs> and then somebody said, oh, wow, man. Another long pause, and someone else said, bummer, man. Another long pause, and someone else said, major bummer, dude. So the guy who started said, well, what should we do, man? And someone said, don't get me wrong. Don't think I'm a Christian or anything like that. Don't think, don't call me some Jesus freak or nothing like that. But I'm just saying, man, maybe we could try an experiment. What kind of experiment are you talking about? Well, he said, maybe we could get a hold of our Bibles and maybe we could like open them to let's say the gospel of John and maybe we could say okay God we don't know if you're out there we're not even sure you exist but man if you want to connect with us we're here we're showing up you show up too you go for it and if he goes for it cool and if he doesn't go for it cool too because we, we gave him a chance and he didn't show up you know, we can blow him off and do our own thing from that point forward because if he didn't come through with the goods when he had a problem and had a chance to do it, then it's his problem. It's his deal, you know. And they all said, far out experiment, dude. <laughs> and so the next Monday, one of that group of party animals went to the Bible teacher at La Sierra Academy and said to him, this is an experiment that we thought we want to try Here's the name of the people, names of the people who want to do it. Do you know anywhere we could hang out to do that on Friday night? And the Bible teacher, bless his heart, said, yeah, you can use my house. And my family and I will be in the back room and out of the way. You can have the front room and you can stay as long as you want because I'll be praying for you. I'm confident this is a really cool experiment and God's going to show up. So they started getting together on Friday nights they opened up to the Gospel of John. They said a prayer to a God they weren't even sure existed. They said, if there's something more here for us and you want to connect, and there can be a heart thing going on, we're showing up. You show up too, and it'll be cool. Now, if you think about it, 
what they're doing in this experiment is exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus to do if you want the click. Right? You follow? You follow what I said earlier? You look in the direction of the uplifted Savior. You place yourself in that environment. That's how you jump into the wind. And he said the Holy Spirit wind will blow through. You will get the click. And you will find transformation. You do this, this is going to happen. And that's exactly what happened for this group. They started getting so excited about a friendship with Jesus. They couldn't wait. They bought little pocket New Testaments. You'd see them at school before and after and during breaks and during lunch hour. They'd be getting together. They'd be showing each other, hey, man, check out what Jesus showed me this morning. It is so cool. Isn't he awesome? And they're going back and forth, and all kinds of other things began happening in their lives. The stuff that they had formerly been so attracted to began to get crowded out of their lives, not because somebody said, okay, now if you're serious about being a Christian, you've got to stop this, 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 and this. You cannot do that anymore because Christians don't act that way. None of that happened. They just lost their attraction because, you know what, as Jesus comes in that stuff just gets crowded out that's how it works and so they're being transformed they're excited about a friendship with Jesus they can't get enough they have had the click now I just want to say a little something backpedal back just a minute have you ever heard somebody say that, that your angels don't go to places that are bad ever heard that kind of rumor that kind of thought Angels, you know, I, the way I heard it originally was the angels stand outside the theater if you go in, along with all the other angels that are hanging out because, they're, you know, everybody's in the theater, so what are the angels going to do? They're just going to sit around out there. How long are you here for? I don't know. I think my guy's in for a doubleheader tonight. I'm going to be here for quite a while. Yeah. No. I, I, I don't... Um, the guy at the party who, who was stoned, and he said... What if you could have a connection with God? Where do you think that idea came from? Do you think Satan put that in his head? No. That came from heaven. Now, maybe the angels weren't there. I don't know. But the Holy Spirit was, and he's bigger than the angels. And so he shows up. And here's one more thing to think of in that context. If God didn't go where bad stuff was happening, Jesus never would have come to planet Earth. You know? So it's precisely because he shows up where we need him most that we have a Savior. I think that's cool. So God likes parties. He goes to parties, you know, because he can get through to somebody maybe. All right, so now they're transformed. They're excited. They're having daily time with Jesus. They're spending weekly time in their small group on Friday nights reading about the life of Christ in the Gospels. And one day as they're reading, they say, oh, man, look at this story about this woman who's got a demonic daughter. And she's following Jesus, and she's saying, hey, yo, Jesus, would you please, you know, my daughter. Now you remember the story. Um, Jesus is going to Syrophoenicia. Now, you understand that the Syrophoenicians and the Jews don't get along. There's major discrimination here between the two groups. It's so major that if a Jew was dying from, from dehydration and a Syrophoenician offered him a glass of water to save his life, the Jew would spit with whatever saliva he could come up with at the feet of the Syrophoenician and say, I will die before I will survive by drinking water that you give me. That's how bad it was. And Jesus is going on to Syrophoenician turf. Why? Because I think he has a lesson he's wanting to teach. So what happens? So the Syrophoenician woman says, yo, Jesus, my daughter, you know, she's demon-possessed. Would you please heal her? And if you read this one quick, it blows your mind because Jesus says at first, he says to her, lady, are you kidding me? Get a life. Why would I give the bread that was meant for the children to a bunch of dogs? Whoa. Did Jesus really say that? Yes, he did. 
but I think he was trying to make a point and teach a lesson to his disciples. And I believe he knew the woman's heart and he knew she'd be good for it. See, his disciples thought there were only two kinds of people in the world. They referred to them as Adventists and non, I mean Jews and non-Jews. Just two kinds, just two kinds. And Jesus wanted them to understand, other sheep have I not of this fold, and there's a whole lot more of them than there are of you. And he winked at the woman, perhaps, when he said, dogs, and play along with me, lady, because my disciples are in a world of trouble here. And she comes back with a classic answer. She says, you know what, Lord, if you want to call me a dog, that's okay with me, because I know one thing, dogs get the crumbs that fall off the table, and I'll settle for a crumb. And Jesus probably wiped a tear from his eye. And he smiled through the tears at her. And he said, lady, you, you just spiked it in the end zone. You, your daughter is well. You can go. Well, these guys, former party animals, now friends of Jesus, read that story. And one of them says, I don't understand this story because the girl's demon-possessed. You don't get demon-possessed by accident. So the girl's been messing with the devil. Now her mother's asking for help. She's not asking for help. The mother is asking for help. And Jesus fixes the girl. Now, how does that all work? And somebody in the group said, I think it's called intercessory prayer. And someone else said, what's intercessory prayer? And another person said, I don't know for sure, but I think it's kind of like there's these good guys and there's these bad guys. And the good guys go to help somebody. And the bad guys come up and they say, time out. You can't help these people because they're not asking for help. But the good guys say, oh, yeah, but there's people over here who are asking for help for them. And so time back in and get out of our face because we've got some work to do here. I think that's kind of what it was. It's like intercessory prayer. And somebody else said, well, does it work? And another voice said, well, it worked in the story. And someone else said, but that's an old story. Does it work now in our day and age? And somebody said, I don't know, but maybe we could try an experiment, man. What kind of experiment are you talking about? Why don't we pick a guy and a girl at our school, La Sierra Academy, that we think are the least interested in spiritual things? The most clickless. And then let's start praying for them, that they would get the click. And if they do, intercessory prayer. And they all said, cool experiment, yeah. So who should we pray for? And I don't remember the name of the girl they chose to pray for, but the name of the guy they chose to pray for was Lee Venden. Lee Venden. And I will always be thankful that I got put on that, on that list. So they start praying for me to get the click. So that Friday night, I come to knock on my friend's door, and he says, come with me to the, to the Bible study. And I went. I did not go because I was interested in the Bible study. I went because I wanted to see party animals with Bibles in their hands. Kind of like you go to the freak show at the circus, you know, just to see the freaks. When I walked in the door, you could have blown away all those people with a feather. It's like, that's oh. leaving it. Yeah, whoa. Uh, 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 intercessory prayer, man. Keep praying. He got him this far. Maybe you can get him all the way. So I don't even know this, but these people are praying for me at, the, at that meeting that night. They open up the Bible. They're reading about the life of Jesus. They're talking with each other about what Jesus means to them and what they have been discovering they mean to Jesus. And as they talk this way and read that way, I find myself starting to get emotional and it bothers me because I don't even know why I'm starting to cry. I, I, don't, I wasn't expecting to cry. I wasn't planning on crying. It bothered me that my eyes were leaking. I tried to hide that. I put my head down and I tried to sniffle discreetly. But you know, 
how hard it is to sniffle discreetly. And, and so there I was. And then they finally finished their study and they said, we're gonna have prayer. And they went to their knees and they had conversational prayer. I stayed in my seat watching them through my sniffles. They finally said amen and they went on their way except for the two closest friends. They came over to me and they said, are you okay? And I said, I don't know what's going on, man. And they said, we know what's going on. You just got ambushed by Jesus. <laughs> and then they explained to me that Christianity is not about what you do. It's about... <laughs> Christianity is not about what you do. It's about who you know. And then who you know changes what you do. All of a sudden, click, I'm seeing the number 11 in square seven. And I go home that night. After midnight, Friday night, I go into my bedroom and I take the Bible that I've only used for required assignments. I open it at random. It opens to the first chapter of the book of Romans. And I end up sitting down and reading all the book of Romans that night, right on through. And as I'm reading Romans, I'm thinking, this is amazing because it says it's not about what, it's about who. It's not about when, it's about who. It's not about where, it's about who. It's not about why, it's about who. It's about who, it's about who. And I thought, when did they change Romans? Had Romans changed? No, I changed. The next morning, I get up early. My dad's going to preach two services right at La Sierra College Church. He's coming down the hall before first service, heading into the kitchen to get a quick bite to eat. The door to my bedroom is open. I am seated on my bed. I have my Bible open on my lap, on my knees. I'm reading the Gospel of John now, which is what they were reading the night before. And as my dad goes by the door, he sees me reading the Bible. And he goes back to the bedroom where my mom is, and he says, Lee is reading his Bible, and it looks like he likes it. <laughs> and my mother comes down the hall. And they're in the kitchen. Oh, 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 oh. And I come into the kitchen with my Bible in my hands, and I say to my preacher father, I say, Dad, did you know Christianity's not about what you do? It's about who you know, and then who you know changes what you do. It's all about becoming friends with Jesus. I'm thinking, this is really cool stuff. He's a preacher. If I tell him this, he could tell this to people. It could help churches, really, you know? And my dad looks at me, and my dad does not say to me, all those books I have written and all those sermons I have preached been about that where have you been do you come to church without your ears that's the one string on my violin and you don't get it until right now huh, that's not what he said God bless him for eternity God bless him because what he said was isn't that wonderful that's what he said isn't that wonderful? And then he went off to preach first service. And I said to myself, I'm going to first service. My friends aren't there and they don't even serve donuts, but I don't care. I'm going to first service. And I sat on the third row and my dad stood up and he began to talk about how knowing Jesus is the heart of the matter and that a friendship with him transforms us from the inside out. And I remember thinking to myself, what a preacher! I had no idea what a hot preacher this guy is. I just told him this 20 minutes ago. He does a whole sermon on it. He says, Bo, talk about improv. Whoa. Had my dad's sermon changed, 
no, I changed. All of a sudden, click, the click of the new birth, and it made all the difference in the world. So what is clear? Three things. The Holy Spirit is responsible for the new birth. We've got to have the click, or we're just dead in the water. Lifeless churches, lifeless members. Got to have the click. Second thing, all we can do to get the click is to look in the direction of the uplifted Savior with a prayer that he gets our hearts in addition to our minds. And the promise is that if we will do that, he will not only cause the click, he will make us into new creations, which is why you're going to hear an old song by a group called Take Three, Born Again. I see the children playing and think of younger days. For now the years have found me and taken my childish ways. I hear the children laughing, how joyful they must be. prayer and then a short announcement so let's pray Lord Jesus that's what we want we want the click we want new birth we want our hearts to be stirred deeply as well as our minds on a daily basis we don't want Christianity to be business as usual routine mere talk dry formality or heavy drudgery we want the real deal we want the real deal so we're looking together in your direction with a prayer that as we lift you up, you will draw us into that deeper, richer experience. For Jesus' sake, amen. And here's the announcement. The majority of people who are Seventh-day Adventists 
have no assurance of salvation. You might think I'm wrong, but I'm right anyway. You ask a typical Seventh-day Adventist, are you saved? And they will answer like this, I'd like to be, I want to be, I hope to be, I'm praying that I will be, you could pray that I will be. Nobody knows for sure until it happens. That's the kind of answer that's typical from a Seventh-day Adventist. And it puzzles me because in our hymnal we have a song called Blessed Assurance. Maybe we should take that one out if we can't sing it. You ask a person who is a Christian but not a member of my subculture, are you, a, are you saved? And, and, and you're likely to hear a response like this, yes, praise Jesus. Now, why is there such a contrast? Tell you what, you come to the 2.30 meeting today, I will show you from the word of God that you can have assurance of salvation now and be a Seventh-day Adventist at the same time. It's so cool. <laughs> 